Shoreline is not merely an organization. We are the church. We're a living organism. We're the body of Christ. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Welcome this morning. Um, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 today. I was trying to see how this whole thing timed with Father's Day, but we, we really have to be faithful just to teach through the Bible. Um, it really would have been cool to see the next section, starting in verse 18, um, where there's this picture of fathers. So dad's kind of our... Uh, mandate or our commission this week, or future dads or dads that want to be dads, men that want to be dads, um, want to encourage you to uh, look over the next section, starting in verse um, 18, for uh, homework for this next week. So, um, Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 12 and um, through verse 17, reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we again acknowledge on this Lord's Day that of all days to consider the Father's love, what better day than as the saints come together to worship the living God, to sing with hearts that are filled with gratitude, to realize that the Father sent His own Son to be the propitiation for us. Lord, what greater truth could we sing about, could we study, than to realize what God the Father has given us in His Son Jesus. So, Father, we thank You for that. We thank You that whether we had a relationship with a dad here on earth that kind of gave us a picture of that love, or whether we had a father who really was absent, uh, who did not demonstrate the love of the Father. Either way, we thank You that we have been accepted in the Beloved because of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank You that today we can study Your Word because of Jesus, we can be allowing the text to be illuminated to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that all things that we do today as we study your word is ultimately uh, for the Father's glory. So, Lord, allow us to learn today, to study, to show ourselves approved, that we would not be ashamed. We would rightly divide your truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would minister to us today. If there's anyone here or watching today um, that is in need of 
gospel truth. We pray that they would find it here in this text. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege and the freedom to meet together. Bless this gathering. Bless this time as we open and really study your word today. We love you and we thank you, Lord, for this amazing moment. And we ask all these things in the name that matters, the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So there's an ancient practice, or you could call it maybe an ancient discipline, that's gaining more traction in in the last 20 or so years. So in the last 20 or so years, uh, people have been seeking to adopt more of the monastic spiritual disciplines or practices, if you would. And so there's this ancient practice that is called in some circles silence and solitude. If you looked up a spiritual disciplines book, you might even find those two in there listed as things that we as believers should be practicing. Silence and solitude. And the idea here is where you essentially get away from people and you get alone. And so the entire purpose really of the monastic or or the monastery as an institution was kind of built on that very idea. And, and not without a little bit of a biblical precedent. So the biblical precedent may have kind of formed out of Mark chapter 6, verse 31. I'll put it on the screen for us. Where Jesus said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I wonder how many Christian retreat centers have that as their theme verse on the signage as you drive into. Um, their facility. Now, in context, what Jesus is saying here, note that the demands of ministry upon him and his disciples were overwhelming. So people were coming, people were going. The disciples were so busy ministering that they actually didn't even have time or an opportunity to eat. They didn't have any leisure time or any time to even eat. And, And certainly, if you've been in ministry any number of years, that can be true. I certainly have been so busy that, you know what? My own health, my own finances, my own time, my family, my home responsibilities are somewhat neglected because there's things that need to be dealt with in the church. Um, But don't miss out on the bigger point. Jesus was inviting his disciples to join him for a short sabbatical. He's saying, come away with me to have a, a little respite from the busy ministry that we were doing. And let's just get out and get away from the hustle and bustle and just spend time with Jesus and rest. Now, I believe more pastors and ministry workers need that. They need regular times of rest and refreshment. You can call them sabbaticals, if you will. And and we need to spend that time with Jesus and and just resting. So that is something that needs to happen. But the monastic discipline that monks would practice of silence and solitude is something totally different. The idea there is that if you want to grow or you want to be spiritually mature, the way that you do that, is in solitude. So you need to be away from the church, away from people to mature spiritually. Or you need to be silent. You need to just get alone and get quiet. And some retreats offer this where they get alone and you just, you don't ever say a word. I I was going to insert a really corny joke right here. We don't have time, so you'll have to come back to the 11 a.m. service to hear that. You're welcome uh, because it's really not funny. Um, Is the secret to spiritual maturity to be isolated from people. Okay, if that's the case, if that is true, then how are you doing here? How are you doing, Shoreline, in the last three months of being isolated from one another? We've all been subject to quarantine, but has that solitude helped to build up your faith, your love, 
your charity and your maturity. One quote captures this best on the screen. It says, one can acquire everything in solitude except character. In other words, it's not through, it's not through solitude, it's not through silence that we mature. It's through community and communication, through meeting together and through speaking that we grow. Character is not acquired in solitude. And so as we have been studying the book of Colossians, remember that Paul is writing to a group of Christians who have been sold this heretical notion that the way up spiritually, the way that you mature is through aesthetic practice and through secret knowledge. But Paul is reminding them that, listen, you've already put off the old. You've put off the things of the past, including the shadow of self-righteous religious effort, and you've put on the new. And so now, after um, we finish our and conclude our study in Colossians, what we're going to be doing is a very special series I've been excited about called Together. And so we'll be starting that the second week in um, Freedom Elementary. And the idea is to come together and talk about what the Bible says about the church and who we are as the church and really what does that mean for my dedication or commitment to the local covenant community. And we're really excited about some initiatives that we're going to be getting behind as a church. But the text that we're going to look at today is actually something we'll be revisiting in that series and we'll be reminding ourselves of in the coming months. And what we're going to see today in this text is that Christ-centered community, that is a community that has been made new in the image of Christ, has at least five marks. Now, normally I give you all of the outline at the beginning, but we're going to walk through these one at a time together, and they're, they're informed directly out of the text. So let's look at these five marks of a Christ-centered community and realize that, listen, my growth and my character does not come by being isolated. It comes by being together. So, number one, uh, Christ-centered community, mark number one, is that we are adorning ourselves in the fruit of the Spirit, or dressing ourselves in the fruit of the Spirit. Um, we're going to look at verses 12 through 15, but last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11, and how Paul reminds us we're dead to this world. We have been risen with Christ, we've been seated with Christ, and thus we're to put off the old self like we put off an old garment an old shirt that doesn't fit us anymore. We're to, be, we're to be clothed, adorned in the new self. And so Paul here uses the same language of put on because this is the same train of thought. Listen, church, don't let one week's time make us go off track and forget where Paul is at in his writing. He's saying, put off the old, put on the new. And so this is that same train of thought of putting on um, the um, holy patterns even as we put off sinful patterns and put him to death. So notice what we're to put on in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here's what we're to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, first note with me in verse 12 that Paul calls the church three things. He says, God's chosen ones or elect, holy, and thirdly, beloved. One, one scholar said those are in the appropriate order. In other words, Scripture tells us we are chosen in him before the creation of the world. We're not chosen because we're holy. Oh, holy, then chosen. No, you're chosen, then we experience his holiness imparted to us, and then we realize we're a part of the beloved. Uh, we are not holy or chosen because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. 
Warren Wiersbe says this. I love this. He says, this miracle of divine election did not depend on anything that we are or that we have done. He references Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, where God speaks about Israel. I didn't choose you because you were all that in a bag of Fritos. Uh, that's there in the original Hebrew, by the way. Um, he says, he goes on to say, if God saved a sinner on the basis of merit or works, nobody would be saved. It is all done through God's grace that it might all bring glory to God. So we are God's elect. We are God's holy. We are God's beloved. Whether you feel that way or not this morning, that is our status as Christians. And so then he says, because of that, put on these characteristics. So let's walk through each one of these, just as we walk through the sinful things we're to put off the last few weeks. Let's walk through these. So the first thing he says is compassionate hearts. And I'm going to have something for the husbands to do or the boyfriends to do, the fiancés to do with your significant other in just a moment. All right. So literally, when we read the words compassionate hearts, literally this is, okay, you ready for this? Bowels of mercy. That's literally what he says. So this is more than just empathy. It's more than just sympathy. The prevailing belief in the ancient world was that the seat of emotion, the seat of emotion where you deeply loved or cared for people was the lower abdomen or the bowels. Now, husbands, boyfriends, I want you to go ahead and turn to your spouse, um, your significant other, and just tell, hey, sweetie, I love you with all of my bowels. Go ahead, do it. Just tell her it's biblical. It's biblical. <laughs> Listen, I, by the way, I did this with my wife last night. I did this with Jen. I said, hey, I'm going to practice something I'm going to do in the sermon tomorrow. Honey, I love you with all my bowels. And she goes, ew, that's gross. <laughs> so the, the intestines are the deepest part of, of a man, of a woman. And, and yet this is the place where we're to express mercy to others. We would say, I love you with all my heart. But they would say, um, bowels of mercy. In other words, it's not superficial. It's not on the outside. It's from the deepest place of where you're at. There's a depth to our compassion for others. Well, then he goes on, he says, kindness. Now, this word kindness is powerful. It's the word that you would use of wine, which had grown mellow with age and lost its original harshness. So over time, that wine had aged in a way that you could drink it and it wouldn't be harsh. Kindness is when your neighbor's good is as dear to you as your own. I was interested in... um, this story of Augustine and Ambrose. And so Ambrose was the pastor of the cathedral in Milan. And it wasn't necessarily his words that moved Augustine to want to know Christ. It was the kind demeanor of Ambrose. And that ultimately led to his conversion. So one of the marks of worldliness, or, or you could say of being unloving, is rudeness. Um, and we know from Scripture, love is not rude, it is kind. So it's just powerful here that we are to put on kindness. We're to, we're to dress ourselves with kindness. That doesn't mean we don't speak the truth, but we're to be kind. Well, then thirdly, he mentions humility. And, of course, humility is greatly misunderstood, but you could translate it simply as the lowliness of mind. Uh, it is that uh, humility that has a huge effect on the next two characteristics. Um, meekness and patience. So um, just to kind of flesh this out, meekness shows how humility affects my actions towards others. So when I'm humble, that will affect um, my actions towards others. I'll be meek. Whereas patience shows how humility will affect my reactions towards others. Okay, so meekness, we hear that a lot. It doesn't mean weakness. 
On the contrary, it's, it's really power under God's control. So the Stoics didn't actually consider meekness as a virtue. They figured that it was not something that was virtuous. Um, but like a broken horse that is much more powerful than the one who has saddled it and is riding it, so too the one who is meek shows they are submitted to the master's control. So when I'm expressing meekness, just like Jesus, it means I'm not domineering others. I'm not in a conversation where I'm domineering them. Uh, I'm meek. When I'm patient, it means I don't react to someone with a short, frustrated attitude. So humility affects both meekness and patience, how I act and how I react. Well, then he goes on and, and he says, bearing with one another and forgiving. Sometimes our relationship, let's be honest, with people in the church it does sound a lot like bearing with one another. Just gritting our teeth. I'm bearing with the church today. Um, we could call this voluntary non-retaliation. There's a handful. Voluntary non-retaliation. Now, this idea of bearing with one another and forgiving, it's both present and past tense. It's present tense in the sense that we currently bear with one another, and it's past tense in the sense that we forgive one another. Notice that Paul says, if one has a complaint against another... We're to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. It's often overlooked that the purpose of Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 is a picture of the insurmountable debt that we have been forgiven by God. And yet we go out and the pennies and pennies that our brothers owe us, we're unwilling to forgive. It doesn't make any sense to not forgive someone something that is so inconsequential when you and I have been forgiven of lawless treason and it cost God his dear son. Often, when we think about forgiveness in the church, can we be real for a minute? Often, when we think about forgiveness, we believe it's conditional, or it's limited. So I'll forgive you, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe, didn't one person ask, up to seven times? There's somewhere in the Bible about that. Up to seven times, I'm limited. But listen, if you sin beyond that one, two, or seven times, multiple times, listen, my limited conditional forgiveness does not have to be complete. So if you sin against me and you're in leadership, I don't have to restore you to leadership. I just have to tolerate you. If you sinned and I'm in a close relationship with you, I don't ever trust you again. I don't ever have to work with you again. I don't ever have to be close to you again. Now, can you imagine if that's how God forgave us? I believe we have a lot of work to do in this area, church. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, suppose that someone had grievously offended any one of you and that he asked your forgiveness. Do you not think that you would probably say to him, well, yes, I forgive you, but I cannot forget it. Ah, dear friends, that is a sort of forgiveness with one leg chopped off. It is a lame forgiveness and is not worth much. We're to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. That's complete and that's total. Well, look at verse 14. He adds three more articles of clothing to wear. Verse 14, above all these, or on the outside of all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And then here's the last one, be thankful. So let's talk about those real quick. Love, first of all. He says, love is to be put on over all the other garments, like a coat, like a belt, It keeps the other articles of clothing together. Imagine, church, humility without love. Imagine forgiveness without love. Imagine trying to be kind or patient 
or have compassion for someone, but you're not willing to lay down your life for them. It's hypocrisy. And so love is to bind all these things together. But then he mentions the peace of Christ. Um, Now, I would note that when he says your hearts, this is plural. So this peace is not necessarily personal. It's corporate. When Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule, the Greek word here is the only time it's used in our New Testament. And it means to umpire. It, It means to arbitrate. And so what he's saying is the peace of Christ is to be the arbitrator. It's to be the judge, the, the umpire, or you could say the governing authority in our community that makes the ultimate final decision. And so we are called to be a part of the singular body of Jesus Christ. And if we are, then his peace should rule and prevail over every, even over every divisive argument that we let simmer to the surface. The peace of Christ is to rule. Well, then he mentions thanksgiving. This is kind of the final thing that he says we should be clothed with. Be clothed with gratitude. Literally, it's keep on always being thankful. This is a mark of being in Christ, an attitude of gratitude. Did your mom used to tell you that? We need an attitude of gratitude. Well, she was right. These are the qualities um, that we are to put on as believers. I like what Spurgeon said about putting on clothing. I know we get two Spurgeon quotes in one sermon. Amazing. This is what you've got to wear, even on the outside, to put it on. Not to have a latent kindness in your heart and a degree of humbleness deep down in your soul, if you could get at it, but you're to put it on. It is to be the very dress you wear. These are the sacred vestments of your daily priesthood. Put them on. So we're going to move a lot faster through these next few Marks. That was Mark number one. But notice with me the next verse and the second mark of Christ-centered community. Number two, admonishing one another. Look at verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, church, silence and solitude is not the answer. We're to gather, we're to address one another. So together corporately, our community should be walking in the attributes we've just read about. And we're going to make mistakes. We're not going to get it perfect. We've got to work through this. We're being sanctified. We're sharpening one another. But that does mean that if someone is still wearing the old garments, they're still in those old sinful patterns, then we should have the place in one another's lives to teach and to admonish one another and to encourage one another to live in a way that's consistent with our new identity, even to sing songs that address one another in these areas. When Paul says teaching and admonishing one another, would you guys circle that word, highlight that, underline that word admonish? The word admonish in the Greek can be translated to warn or to counsel or to advise. So Paul says the same word to the Romans when he says, hey, everything written in the past was written to teach us or to warn us, to admonish us. So when we come together corporately, As the body of Christ, how often are we bold enough and are we loving enough to admonish one another? Many of us would say, well, I would have people admonish me, but I don't know anyone. And we would put that on other people. The people in that church need to get to know me (laughs) rather than I need to get to know them. I need to be known. Matt Chandler says to be 99% known is to not be fully known. So I need to be known. I need to make myself known. 
Like, I don't know about you guys, but I am uninterested in a weekend event where I come and I go and I sit and spectate the spectacle on the stage and then I just leave and, and live a disconnected, independent life. That is not what Paul is describing here. And if that's what you're looking for in a church, then I want to strongly encourage you to find a different fellowship. Maybe even reread your Bibles because that's not how the Bible describes the church. We are to admonish one another, which means we know one another, we love one another, we're trying to encourage one another. Notice that we admonish and teach one another in all wisdom and that there's a singing aspect to this. I love this. That means the words that we sing in our songs need to be biblical. Both here and in Ephesians 5, Paul mentions three kind of categories of songs. He mentions psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we talked about this in our um, series that we went through the psalms. We talked about worship. But let me just reiterate, since we're now here in this text, what these three things mean. When Paul says hymns, this is the New Testament word that refers to our psalms. uh, When he says psalms, rather. Um, So the word psalms here literally does mean psalms. Um, One person said, Paul points us to Psalms first, exhorting us to sing the words of Scripture and take them as our pattern. Um, So that's what he means by Psalms, literally the Psalms. But then he mentions hymns, secondly. And when he says hymns, that's different than what we mean today. When we think of hymns, we're like, oh yeah, I know Fanny Crosby wrote some hymns. That's not exactly what he meant. Um, In the Greco-Roman empires, leading up to the time of the New Testament, A hymn was something that you would sing to praise a hero or a god or a demigod. You would sing a hymn to the military victory of the general. You would exalt the false gods of mythology. And the songs that you'd sing to them were known as hymns. But as the gospel spread through the known world, the church transformed that hymn into a song of praise to the one true God. So there's actually, in 112 AD, there was a governor in Bithynia who wrote to the emperor, and he said, how do I handle all these Christians? And the, um, the correspondence, he said, it's so weird. These Christians are singing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Isn't that so backwards, right? And so you don't sing songs for someone who is crucified on a Roman cross. You would sing to those who are champions and heroes. And so Paul seems to be encouraging the church to claim the music of the culture and to sing it for God's glory. That doesn't mean that we sing the lyrics of the culture, but maybe the style, the genre, or the tune. So we take that phrase, Caesar is Lord, and we change it to Jesus is Lord. Um, Then there are spiritual songs. And this is kind of a generic Greek word that just means all different kinds of songs. Um, Not all music is composed for worship or should be used for worship. So we're to sing music that is the result of the Spirit of God working in hearts and cultures and peoples, music that's sanctified for God's glory and corporate praise, music that helps us speak truth to one another, admonish one another, teach and exhort one another. So don't overthink those categories. I think the takeaway Paul was getting at is there's a variety of different ways that we sing. But what we're doing when we come together, have you ever thought about this? We're walking into a room of people, and then we're we're just starting to sing. Like, that's not normal. There's no, there's no cultural counterpart for that. When you go to a concert, you know the songs, and you're there for the artist. So it's not like we're going to a concert. We come together, we're singing to the Lord, and we're also addressing one another. That doesn't mean you turn to your neighbor, and now I'm going to sing to you, brother. It doesn't mean that. But as we're singing the songs, we're being reminded in Christ alone 
My hope is found. Isn't your hope found in Christ alone? And we're being reminded of those things and those truths as we sing. So that's why you guys know this. It is key that what we're singing is flowing out of truth and out of biblical truth. Now note that the key to all of this is the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. That's the next mark, the third mark of Christ-centered community. Number three, adoring Christ and his word. Look at verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, that phrase, the word of Christ, is unique here in the entire New Testament. It literally means the word, the logos spoken by Jesus Christ. The logos spoken by the logos. What Christ has spoken is to dwell in us richly. It's to dwell in us. Would you please circle that word? The word dwell means the way you're thinking to make a dwelling, to make a home in. The New Testament scholar West emphasizes this. He says, The exhortation is to the effect that the Christian is to so yield himself to the word that there is a certain at-homeness of the word in his being. The word, the Bible, should be able to feel at home in his heart. The saint should give it unrestricted liberty in his life, and the word richly means abundantly. So as we meet together with the church, the primary purpose for our gathering, the primary purpose is to equip the saints. Is there a place for evangelism? Yes and amen. There should be everywhere a place for evangelism. But the primary reason we gather is to be equipped. So church, Sunday morning is for the church. If unbelievers are here or watching, we're thankful that you're here watching us. And we want you to make you know, a decision for Christ. We want you to come to faith in Christ. Uh, but listen, the way that we are equipped is by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So listen, that does not mean that we just merely give a nod to the Bible and then quote it on occasion. Like we're trying to meet some minimum quota. Like, all right, well, we've got to at least throw the Bible in there somewhere. Maybe I'll hold it up and address the crowd at the beginning and say, this is my Bible. I don't know. Um, having the word of Christ dwelling in us richly does not mean that I'm getting up here to teach my opinion and then I'm going to string along a series of verses as supporting evidence of my viewpoint. It means we make the word of God such a central part of our gatherings corporately and in our lives devotionally that it's right at home. When When you have a visitor to your home, a guest, you are trying to be hospitable to them. What do you usually say? If they have a question, hey, would you mind if I, what do you usually interrupt? You'd say, make yourself at home. I want you to feel at home. For, for you know, all of us, that might mean something different. For some of us, it might mean like, yeah, take your shoes off. For others, it might mean like, take your socks off. Man, that's a little bit too at home, maybe. Uh, for some of us, it's like, yeah, help yourself. You know, there's, there's water in the fridge. For others, it's like, you know, do you need to brush your teeth? You know, we've got extra toothpaste, whatever. But it means make yourself at home. Mi casa, su casa, which of course means me house, su house, okay? Um, The idea here is don't be formal, don't be awkward, get settled in as if you were at home. So church, is the word of of Christ dwelling in you richly, abundantly? Is his word at home in your life? You might say, well, pastor, I don't know. Like, help me understand that. Help me address that. Well, here's some qualifying questions. If the Bible were quoted during a commute with your kids, or if the Bible were quoted at dinner or at bedtime, would this be out of place or would this be right at home? 
if scripture memory were encouraged by you as a parent to your kids or as you as a husband to your family, to your wife, practice and adopted by the whole family, would this be out of place or right at home? If starting or ending the day with devotional scripture reading was introduced to your schedule or your lunch break, would this be out of place or right at home? If the Bible were opened and studied at one of the social gatherings you normally frequent, would this be out of place or right at home? Or if you're watching online and you don't have a home church or you're involved at a different church, if the opening line of the sermon was, please turn in your Bibles to, would that be out of place or right at home? You see, the word of Christ is to dwell within us individually and corporately in an abundant way. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, let's look at our fourth and fifth mark together. And both of these are found in verse 17. We'll put them both on the screen as we read it. He says in verse 17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So note with me, on the screen, a Christ-centered community is number four, acknowledging Christ in all things, and it's appreciating the Father for all things. So let's kind of dive into this. Paul says, whatever you do. And then he points out two things, in word or in deed. In other words, there is no secular and sacred divide in Christianity. Like, well, you know, I do all my sacred Christian things in the name of Jesus, but then there's everything else that I do um, in, in the me category. Like there's the Jesus sacred category, then there's the me secular category. No, Paul says do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he instructed those who were appointed to eternal life, as they were cut to the heart, he says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So the Christian's identity is rooted in the name of Jesus. We are called Christians, whether in the Bible that was derogatory or not, We're called Christians because of the name of Jesus. In fact, we're instructed to pray in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean you just say at the end of a prayer, like, Lord, I want a Mercedes in Jesus' name. Now it's magic. That's not what that means. It means like when a president's name is on a bill, that makes it law. When, does anyone remember checks? Are those still a thing? Remember when you used to write checks? All right. Everything's cash app now, Venmo. Well, when we used to have checks, you would actually sign your name and that check wasn't really good until your signature was on it. So in a way, when he says that we are to do everything in the name, it kind of means like having power of attorney. In other words, everything that we do bears the signature of Jesus Christ, as if Jesus himself were saying or doing that word or deed. So whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means our vocation and our recreation. That means in your private life and in your public life. That means our words and our deeds. In every area, we are going to acknowledge Christ in all things. But not only that, he also mentions to appreciate the Father for all things. One of the marks in Romans chapter 1 of a wicked, unregenerate person, or you could just say the category of unregenerate, is that they will neither glorify God nor thank him. In Romans 1, that just jumps off the page. They neither glorify God nor thanked him. So rather than looking at the world and having kind of a a glorifying thanksgiving, like, thank you, God, for what you've created. Like, Like, have you ever thought about this? Like, the exact spot that the earth revolves around the sun. 
it is too, almost to the exact habitable moment, the habitable spot as it revolves around the sun. Just a little bit closer to the sun, just a little bit further away, um, and we're going to be having, you know, absolute death. Um, and, and yet, no one has, seems to have gratitude for that. There's no, there's no gratitude, no thanksgiving for the delicate balance of our bodies, that homeostasis. There, there's no thanksgiving for the appropriate gravity that we have. Thankfully, we're not being crushed by Earth's gravity. Um, we're, we're not walking around as unbelievers thanking God for the atmosphere that has a, a sustainable level of oxygen, nitrogen, argon, carbon dioxide, right? I don't see unbelievers like, thank you, God, that there's not too much neon, helium, methane, hydrogen, water vapor. People aren't doing that. They're not giving God glory for um, those things. And I wonder, for us as the church, do we take time every day to just glorify God for the little and unnoticeable blessings that he's given to all people, let alone, especially the riches of Christ that we have bestowed upon us as believers? We're to thank the Father for all things. Have you done that recently? We just wake up and you say, Lord, thank you. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given me. It's undeserved, but I'm appreciative for it. Uh, Bailey says this, a true Christian is a man who never for a moment forgets what God has done for him in Christ and whose whole comportment and whole activity have their root in the sentiment of gratitude. So as we give glory to Christ and as we give thanks to the Father, we're not focusing on us and how this person wronged us, and how that person was rude to us. We're focused on giving God the attention. Now, these marks that we've just looked at are not exhaustive. We'll cover much more in our series called Together when we close the book of Colossians in just a few weeks. But they do give us a good start as we consider how do we live our lives together in community with the body of Christ. And I think like the best way to apply this section of Scripture... It's really wrestling through this. Like, all of this is application. How do we make this, like, a little bit set apart and really for our church? So I think the best way to apply this is to consider a faith community that takes the opposite approach to these five marks. Now, I want us to have some discipline here because what I don't want you to do is think of the prior church that you were involved with years ago or months ago and go, yeah, they need to hear that. I'm going to share this message on my pastor's page. I don't want you to do that. I want us to look at our fellowship here and say, Lord, may it never be. And so I'm going to say these out loud and put them on the screen, and I want it to feel so unnatural that to even say it feels wrong because these are the opposite of what Paul is describing. So let me just say it in the first person so it feels a little bit uncomfortable, okay? This is the first one. Instead of a community walking together in unrighteousness, or righteousness, we are walking in unrepentant sin. Now this may be in the form of personal unrighteousness when we when we sin against the Lord, uh, or when we sin against one another. There's no privatized faith. So when we sin personally, we're sinning against the body. So in that sort of a community, just think of the opposite here. There's no humility. There's no kindness. There's no peace, love, or compassion. Instead, in that church, there's strife and pride and arguments that never get resolved. And sadly, the work of the gospel is hindered. And so we're to put on these attributes. Number two, just imagine this. Instead of a community admonishing one another, we are avoiding one another. So when someone sins against us or we get into a dispute, we refuse to sit down and listen. We refuse to work it out together. We, what's the phrase? Ghost them on Facebook. We ghost them as they try to text or call. 
They come to the door, and this has happened to me. Go to the door to talk to someone and work through it, and they refuse to answer the door. Paul exhorted Yodia and Syntyche and, and the church in Philippi that they needed to agree with one another in the Lord. We don't know what their disagreement was about. Paul gives us the dignity of these women by not telling us. But he says to them in front of everyone for all of church history, you need to agree with one another in the Lord. That doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything, but we need to be willing to find out where we can come to an agreement and we need to major on the majors. So imagine a church community where we were free to admonish and warn one another and we weren't afraid that if we did that, the person would unfriend us or leave the fellowship. Number three, Instead of a community letting the word of God dwell in them richly, imagine this, we're laying aside the word of God. So we set it aside. So sadly, when you do that, when you set aside the scripture, something else becomes the authority in your life. It might be a best-selling book. It might be a political commentator's perspective. And that will shape how you think. Then you turn to who you are. And an online personality test or psychological jargon will fill your mind and shape who you think you are. And then your theology is shaped not by scripture, but by short, catchy, retweetable statements that rhyme or from your modern worship songs. That's where I get my theology. Even theological or denominational traditions can dwell so richly in us that we overlook the Bible in favor of our pet doctrine. Something other than the scriptures becomes the authoritative voice in our lives. We need to let the word of Christ dwell on us richly. Well, then how about this? Instead of a community doing everything in the name of Jesus, instead we promote ourselves in all things. So it isn't all about Jesus. It's all about our church. It isn't marveling at the name of Christ. It's marketing the name of our fellowship. So, In that fellowship, we aren't doing everything in Jesus' name. We're doing everything in our church's name. Thus, we elevate the work of the church above the work of Christ. Finally, imagine this, as horrible as this sounds. Instead of a community praising and thanking God, we give ourselves the glory and the credit. The best way to gauge this is when someone gives us a compliment, or worse, when someone compliments someone else in front of us. Where does our heart go? Where does our mind go? Often we think, you know, I'm glad you noticed. Thanks so much. It did take a lot of hard effort and hard work. And we want to receive the praise. Rather than being a vibrant church community that gives God glory and gives other people the credit as much as possible. So as we close, I'm going to invite our worship team up. And we're going to close um, being reminded of the Father's love for us. Uh, Great song, great reminder. But I want to turn this a little more personal to each one of us. Do you and I have the same attitude that the psalmist had in Psalm 122.1? At the beginning of that psalm, here's what he says. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let me make this personal for each one of us here and watching. Is there an excitement? Is there a glad anticipation when you consider the corporate gathering of God's people? Let me ask it in a more convicting way. Have you been secretly enjoying the solitude that this quarantine has forced you into? Like, like is there a place of introverted comfort and ease that would prefer to stay home in your pajamas rather than being around other Christ followers? Do you miss the community? Or do you say, no, I like the distance. I like the independence. I like the lack of accountability. 
Now, now obviously, there's a short-term, for sure, a short-term and kind of fleeting feeling of ease that we may have appreciated. Like, okay, it's been a little bit nice to not have to wake up and not get the kids, you know, dialed down from monster level to appropriate level. Like, I kind of have enjoyed some of that. Like, I understand some of that. I get it. But the last three months should have created a deep and insatiable longing for our church community. Why? Because the church is not just a social gathering. You and I, we're the people of God. We're we're not, Shoreline is not merely an organization. We are the church. We're a living organism. We're the body of Christ. The church is not an institution. It's a movement. It's a movement of God's spirit on earth as we're called out of darkness and chosen in him. We're wholly beloved and we're set apart from this world. And so my desire is for us to not be isolated and to think that's how we grow our character, but to come into being fully known. The Gettys wrote this so well. They said, O church, arise. The, the hymn says this, So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. That's my prayer for us, that we would be the church that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Amen? That's my prayer for us. Let's stand together, and I'm going to pray for us before we sing this, a special prayer that was written by Scotty Smith. And the prayer is called, A Prayer to Prepare Ourselves for Corporate Worship. So bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray this for us. He says this. He prays this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of corporate worship the joy of gathering with sisters and brothers to boast in Christ, worship by the Spirit, and receive your word. Forgive us for taking this honor for granted and for coming less than prepared. Thank you for those who will lead us in worship, your worship this Sunday. We pray for the singers and musicians. Father, may they serve us as lead worshipers first and worship leaders second. Fill their hearts with a fresh sighting of the beauty of Jesus and give them a keen awareness of the riches of the gospel. Thank you for their preparation. Now bless them in their service to us. Thank you for your servants who will read and preach your word to us today. Give them focus and freedom, passion and pacing, and faithfulness to the text, along with joy in Jesus. By your spirit, open to us your word today and your word to us. May the gospel come with convicting and humbling power and with gladdening and transforming grace. No matter the text, may Jesus be regaled as the heartbeat focus and fulfillment of the passage. Thank you for the guests and visitors who will gather with us today. May they experience your welcoming heart, the magnificence of your glory, the riches of your grace. And as we leave the service today with your benediction and blessing, free us to serve you this week with gladness and hope. May we love well until the day Jesus returns to finish making all things new. So very amen, we pray, in Jesus' merciful and mighty name. Amen. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.